If you're following along with us with your own copy of the book, let's turn to page 351, chapter 39. Therese Noeman, the Catholic stigmatist. <clears throat> Return to India. I have waited for you patiently for 15 years. Soon I shall swim out of the body and on to the shining abode. Yogananda, come. Sri Yukteswar's voice sounded startlingly in my inner ear as I sat for meditation at my Mount Washington headquarters. Traversing 10,000 miles in the twinkling of an eye, his message penetrated my being like a flash of lightning. Fifteen years? Mm. Yes, I realized now it is 1935. I have spent 15 years in spreading my Guru's teachings in America, and now he recalls me. <clears throat> so Sri Yukteswar calls his disciple home, says, Bahut ho gaya. <laughs> You've been gone for back. too long. Come back, I need to see you one last time, because I'm ready to leave my body. So Yoganandaji came to America in 1920, in his mid to late 20s, himself a young man. Now 15 years have passed, he is now in his 40s, he's getting a little older and his guru of course now is in his 80s, waiting for him to come to him one last time. Love that, you know, they can communicate so yes. seamlessly, so easily. Oh, I have a message for you, boom, let me just <laughs> put it in your consciousness. And we see this throughout the book, Babaji just placing thoughts wherever he wants, you know, any of these masters. Just, they don't need words, they don't need the written script, yeah. although they've made use of it many times. And one often wonders, you know, why aren't I getting any messages <laughs> when I sit to meditate? You know, why isn't my guru speaking to me? Or why am I not hearing these, you know, bells and whistles? And of course, it's because we're not attuned enough to it. Yoganandaji, in one of these chapters, I think the law of miracles, he talks about how the human body, but more especially the brain is a lot like a radio and it's about which station you're tuned into so you can't be saying why am i not catching the songs that i want to listen to if you're on some completely random channel most of us tend to be on the <laughs> channel between the channels where there's just a lot of static lots of thoughts running lots of hopes dreams lots of wishes lots of conflicting ideas wanting to do this but also wanting to do that also afraid of this but hoping this might happen wanting to have a lot of something but not willing to put the energy out and everything in our being is just you know so there's just a lot of that yes. and so in there it's just hard to hear anything Yoganandaji said that the language of God is silence <laughs> so you need to first get into that deep silence before you're going to be able to hear that vibration of Om. You're going to be able to hear when your Guru says, Yogananda, come. And so that's the preparation each of us are working on as we sit to meditate each day. The idea is, can I at least momentarily get my radio dial to attune? And we know this is hard and we know it comes onto the channel just for a brief second and then it's off again and then it's in that static period for a little while and then again we bring it back but that's the training that each of us are working hard at. One day we too will hear their mm -hmm. voice 
as clearly as if they were sitting right next to us. In I, fact, more like they're sitting within us. Indeed. I was thinking like, you know, he, sometimes we, when we try to be in silence to receive any kind of guidance, any kind of solution to a problem, any question to what's our next step, you know, we, we kind of bombarding, <laughs> bombarding silence and imposing God what are the things that we would like to happen to and we start visualizing and we add so much noise to the silence that is already there, ready for us to step in and listen quietly. And I think this is very important for us when we try to look again for an answer to our next steps. Just detach yourself even from your own expectations of what you think you should receive. Here, Yogananda wasn't even asking for it, wasn't even thinking perhaps about his guru, wasn't even you know, putting energy into motion, but the moment he went into his center, the message that he needed to receive for his next steps, now we'll see this is a, a year and a half of traveling. And, and that message came, which was only Yogananda, come, that's all, and took him one year and a half of exploring and learning and coming back to India and realizing many things that we will go through. But very important for us to open ourselves to any guidance, because what we think we should receive, perhaps, it's not what needs to come to us right now. So, so leave a space, allow the silence, allow the divine guidance to come to us also unexpectedly. And that requires a lot of openness and stillness from our side. So I think that's something to keep in mind when we enter into our meditation, our way of asking the universe, what's next? How should I go about it? What kind of project I should be involved? Stop and see what you listen in that silence. That afternoon, I recounted my experience to a visiting disciple. His spiritual development under Kriya Yoga was so remarkable that I often called him Saint, remembering Babaji's prophecy that America too would produce men and women of divine realization through the ancient yogic path. Person Yoganandaji is referring to here is Rajarsi Janakananda, who became his successor and took over uh, the mission that Yogananda had from his guru after Yoganandaji left the body. Um, his name, his Christian name, was James Lynn, and he was a self made millionaire, big businessman in America who came to Yogananda because he was so restless. He says, I could not even sit still for a moment. I would constantly fidget and I'd have to keep changing my, and he says, just the stress of, you know, he was a insurance in a railroad tycoon. So just the trying to keep everything afloat was getting so much to him. So when he heard Yogananda-ji once lecture, he said, you know, I need whatever this man is talking about. I have no idea who he is or what he's saying, but I need it. And he said, when I first started, I couldn't meditate more than a few minutes. You know, I just get so restless, but because I had learned to develop deep focus and concentration from my work and intense willpower, little by little he was able to 
stay and hold himself in that stillness. And then Yoganandaji said he made such rapid progress that in within that same incarnation, he became completely liberated. So isn't that a very (laughs) soothing and encouraging thought? So, you know, we were not that bad, but we're not putting the amount of energy this man put in. Actually, that's what I like about this most advanced disciple. In fact, Yogananda said he was the most advanced disciple from all the students he had. And this man had tremendous amount of energy and he came to his guru already with this huge high energy. Yogananda could do something with that. Mm. And that's something that people uh, miss on the spiritual path. They think that the more quiet and calm and silent and less energy put out, you know, the more I'll be able to commune with God and just be inwardly and receive all these inspirations. I mean, it takes energy to find God. It takes energy to overcome a negative tendency. It takes energy to make things happen. So when a guru finds a disciple with tremendous <laughs> amount of energy, it's just like the heaven opens, you know, and all the angels, you know, with the bells. Yeah, we have found someone who can manifest on earth. So uh, I would like to bring that point that yeah. this disciple had a tremendous amount of energy and his guru helped him to channel that energy for a higher cause than just making money. And of course, how to use that money dharmically so he could benefit spiritually as well from fulfilling his dharma in this lifetime. This disciple and a number of others generously insisted on making a donation for my travels. The financial problem thus solved, I made arrangements to sail via Europe for India. Busy weeks of preparations at Mount Washington. And in March 1935, I had the Self-Realization Fellowship chartered under the law of the state of California as a non-profit corporation. So it took around 15 years for Yoganandaji yeah, to get his, yeah. to finally get an organization in place that he could now, you know, what in India we'd have like a public charitable trust over there, a not-for-profit corporation. And so he created that. He said, okay, now I'm leaving, so I need to have some sort of a structure in place while I'm gone in case I never come back, <laughs> but no, he's back, no, he's coming he, back. He, he says, says it right here, I'm coming back. <laughs> to the educational institution go all my, all public donations as well as all the revenue from the sale of my books, magazines, written courses, class tuitions, and every other source of income. So that's an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. That means thus far, Yoganandaji has been kind of managing it all. You know, he's been kind of earning all the money, paying all the rent, running everything by himself. I and mean, that would have been a, quite a task to you know, manage across such a large country. And they had so many centers everywhere. But now finally, he kind of organized it in a way, created a board of trustees and just was able to hand all organizational duties over to the disciples. I shall be back, I told my students, and never shall I forget America. At a farewell banquet given to me in Los Angeles by loving friends, I looked long at their faces and thought gratefully, Lord, he who remembers thee as the sole giver will never lack the sweetness of friendship among mortals. 
a good thing for us to remember. If you feel you're missing friends and that you don't have enough people that you can rely on in your life, kind of think to if you can shift that awareness and see God as your soul friend, then through everybody else he can work and bring about miracles in your life. That's pretty much how Narayani and I have survived yeah. thus far through just having really, really good, good friends. friends. Yeah. Like any other group, so now they set out, sorry, I'm missing a paragraph I here. I sailed from New York on June 9th, 1935. Two students accompanied me, my secretary, Mr. C. Richard Wright, and an elderly lady from Cincinnati, Miss Etty Bletch. I want to know about this lady, lady because suddenly like, hmm, I have not found out about her yet, so it would be interesting. She would have had a fun time. Yeah, I'm sure. We enjoyed the days of ocean peace, a welcome contrast to the past hurried weeks. Our period of leisure was short-lived as the speed of modern boats had some regrettable features. When Yogananda-ji first came over to America in 1920, he also sailed by boat, but that took him several months to reach yeah. America. Now he's like in the 15 years, technology had <laughs> gotten a little better, so now the speed of all these boats and ships they weren't planes really yet, not at least for the public that he got. Now he lands in Europe, in England. Like any other group of inquisitive tourists, we walked around the huge and ancient city of London. So this is, of course, before World War II. World War I, of course, ended in, the 19, in 1918, but World War II is yet to have begun. The following day, I was invited to address a large meeting in Caxton Hall at which I was introduced to the London audience by Sir Francis Young Husband. What a name. Our party spent a pleasant day at, at guests of Sir Harry Lauder in his estate in Scotland. We soon crossed the English Channel to the continent for the continent, where I wanted to make a special pilgrimage to Bavaria. Bavaria is Germany. This would be my only chance I felt to visit the great Catholic mystic Therese Neumann of Connors Roof. Years earlier, I had read an amazing account of Therese. Information given in the article was as follows. Number one, Therese, born in 1898, which makes her five years younger to Yoganandaji. Yeah had been injured in an accident at the age of 20. She became blind and paralyzed. Wow. She miraculously regained her sight in 1923 through prayers to Saint Teresa, the little flower. Later, Teresa Neumann, Therese Neumann's limbs were instantaneously healed. From 1923 onward, Therese had abstained completely from food and drink, except for the daily swallowing of one small consecrated wafer. I don't know if you are familiar with the Catholic uh, Mass. Uh, perhaps you've seen this in movies. You know, after the Mass, after the whole satsang and the seva is over, everybody comes up to the... This is specific to Catholics, not to Christians all in general, but they come up to the altar to the priest and the priest gives them this tiny little wafer that he either places in their tongue or hands them and they eat it. And this is a tradition that comes from uh, an experience that happened during the Last Supper of Christ's life. So in the Last Supper, Christ, uh, 
knew the very next day he was going to be crucified. He was going to be killed. So he gathered his 12 disciples and they all ate together. And before they ate, Christ took a piece of bread and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, you know, eat of my flesh. And so he passed around bread to everybody and he took a cup of wine. So those of you who are <laughs> all into wine, you know, just everybody uses Christ as their own. He drank wine. So he took, takes this cup of wine and he says, this is my blood. Then it's actually a very interesting thought behind it. I of don't course. know if this is true. I have not heard yet anyone or Swamiji or anyone, but uh, Yogananda said that every fruit has a spiritual quality. Mm -hmm. And of course, wine is made of grapes and grapes symbolize devotion. So mm -hmm. I don't know if there is something there, any relation like, you know, drink and make sure that what you have within you above all is your devotion. And then of course they offer as a, you know, commune with myself. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So of course, I mean, these are symbolic yeah, moments symbolic. and it's hard to know exactly what took place. Paramahansa Yogananda talks about that since Christ was about to be crucified and was about to leave his disciples, he wanted them to realize that they need to really take now more than ever from him, his vibration, his blood, his energy, his everything to take and make it a part of who they are as disciples. Because, you know, when you've got a great teacher, a master, a guru, anybody in, in the body, there's a great dependence on them. It's just like, whatever you tell me, I'll do, I'll it. do it. You tell me to jump here, you tell me to go there, you tell me to you know, strip down over here, whatever it is. And to a certain degree, the disciple rightfully to a certain way, in a certain way, surrenders his will and says, you know, I offer to you everything that I am and now you just guide me. But sometimes a certain passivity enters in that relationship where you're just but to in order to have that eventual state of self-realization, the disciple can't forever remain in that passive receiving state. He has to become just like the master, self-realized himself. And so little by little, he needs to learn how to take on the consciousness of the guru. The guru become the guru from the inside. So it's no longer some external reality telling him, essentially develop true intuition. So that in every stage of his life, he's the one putting the energy out, but being guided inwardly like Yogananda. Yogananda, come. So he knows exactly what his guru wants from him. Never for a moment are they apart. But at the same time, he's not having to call his, Guruji, should I go here? Should I do this? Should I eat this? Should I buy that? Because there's just that perfect attunement. And Christ having lived only three years with his disciples, which is amazing. Christ started preaching as, at the age of 30 and was crucified at the age of 33. So three years is all anything happened that we know of his life. I mean, imagine those three years, 2000 years later, continues to influence such a large population of the world and continues to influence just modern culture in general, everything that so much of what we've received comes to us from the West, inspired in many ways by Christ himself. So you can see the power that a self-realized master can have just in that little period. But for his disciples particularly, he needed more from them. He needed them to 
take inside them entirely now. Essentially, he needed them to become Christ themselves. He needed them to now be the emissaries, be the representatives for the people who will come to these teachings. And then even for those who never met him, I mean, centuries later, to be able to, to experience what really Christ went through. I mean, like using disciples to, to channel all that he experienced in those moments. So it's, it's quite remarkable how Jesus and Christ and his teachings are still alive. And those who sincerely pray to be channels for his teachings can be touched by Christ. And I think Teresa Newman was really one of those saints that mm. she, she was already, you know... She the, never met him. She never met him and she became almost a representative of him just by... And the only thing she was doing was using her physical body. That was her teaching and not by bread alone. The, you know, man lives. So we will see right now that how Christ's teachings are still alive in society through many anonymous saints and not necessarily people who give talks and tour around, you know, just in a very humble way. You just go and be in their presence and you realize like, wow, I, I'm in the presence of Christ. And this person is channeling that energy and that consciousness. Surprisingly, more than any religion, the, you know, the tradition of Christ actually follows perfectly the Guru Shishya Parampara. You know, just Guru to disciple to disciple to disciple and continues until this day. And of course, we have the same here in India, where we've got so many sources from which the disciples draw, so many different lineages that it's hard to see them all as one, even though that's in fact the truth. So here we have St. Teresa, this Teres Nueman, you know, just living in an obscure little village somewhere in Bavaria. We don't even know who she is. We probably would never have heard of her if I wouldn't have if it wasn't for this book. And at the age of 20, she's in this horrible accident, uh, becomes blind, blind, becomes entirely paralyzed. You know, this is the worst thing we can think that can happen to somebody. You'd prefer perhaps that they even left the body than the suffering that they have to endure. Then miraculously, three years later, so three years of, you know, going through this process, she's suddenly immediately healed and she's been praying to St. Teresa. But I think this is the Saint Teresa, the French saint, not of Avila, of Lisieux, mm -hmm. the little flower as she was called. Um, so then in 1923 onwards, suddenly from that moment on, Therese decides that she's not going to eat or drink anything. Stops eating and drinking at all, except for every day, that tiny little consecrated wafer that represents the body of Christ taking in the vibration of Christ alone, essentially saying, as Narayani said, I live by the power of Christ. I don't live by food, I don't live by drink, I live by nothing else, but by this power. The stigmata, now I don't know if you know the stigmata, I will talk about it, or the sacred wounds of Christ appeared in 1926 on Therese's hand, breast, ha head. head, sorry, breasts, hands and feet. 
On Friday of every week thereafter, she has passed through the passion of Christ, suffering in her own body all his historic agonies. So now the Last Supper takes place. Christ knows in the very next day what is to happen. And so that at dawn of the next day, the Roman soldiers come, arrest Christ and take him to be tried where he is given a mock trial of sorts because the priests who were in power at the time, they felt threatened by Christ's power, by his charisma, where he was talking about, yeah, yeah, you know, he was talking about, no, you don't need priests and you don't need your, you know, daily sacrifices in order to commune with God. You can just commune with God directly because the kingdom of God lies within. In fact, he said, be still and know that you are God. So this was a doctrine that was new and it was very, very like, <laughs> people depended on the priest. They said, Ki humko paisa do. give us your cows, give us your sheep, we'll sacrifice them, we'll speak to God on your behalf and then you will have the blessings that you seek. So that had been the system thus far. But Christ is coming and shaking things up and saying, Iski hai. you yourself can start to relate to God and see him as the father, which was another major shift because in Judaism, until that time, God was seen as the judge. He judged you as good or bad, right or wrong, and according to his judgment, you received, you know, whether punishment or you received gifts. But Christ said, no, let's see God as our father. And a father will never punish a son, even when he's wrong. Thora karega, but he'll always love him. So if you connect with God as the father, that's the relationship and that's what you'll receive from him. So it was very radical at that time now and of course in our own tradition of Hinduism, we've always seen God as father, as mother, as you know, that's been, you've got Krishna as the little child. We've just got so many relationships with God in so many different ways that we can express it. But it wasn't true back then, especially in that tradition. So here he is, he's arrested and now he's going to be crucified. As part of his crucifixion, he received several wounds. The first is on the head. From the head was when the crown of thorns was placed on his head because um, it was a kind of making fun of him because he declared himself as the king of the Jews, as their Messiah. And so they put this crown on his head of thorns to kind of mock him to say, this is your crown. And so he starts, of course, bleeding profusely from the head. And then when he makes, when they finally nail him to the cross, you've got the wounds of the nails in his hands. They nail his feet. And finally, before he's just about to die, one Roman soldier punctures his lung just below his ribcage with a spear. And so there is also a wound on his chest. So these are the wounds that Therese Nueman now suddenly starts receiving. Blood starts to flow from her hands, feet, head and her breast, all indicative and symbolic of the wounds that Christ received that day. And this entire process is called the Passion of Christ. Knowing ordinarily only simple German of her village, during her Friday trances, Therese uttered phrases which scholars have identified as ancient Aramaic. At appropriate times in her visions, she speaks Hebrew or Greek. So in that moment, she starts speaking these ancient tongues that she's, of course, never spoken before. By Ecclesiastical, these are big words, permission, which means the permission of the Catholic Church. You know, they love these 
slightly <laughs> large words that none of us can pronounce, or at least not I. Therese has several times been under close scientific observation. Dr. Fritz Gerlich, editor of a Protestant German newspaper, went to Konnersrauth to expose the Catholic fraud, but ended up by reverently writing her biography. So, of course... Oh, no, sorry. no, go ahead, please. You tell me. No, I was thinking, these are the real miracles that saints can do, is just to transform an atheist, perhaps, if this guy was there to expose that fraud, to become a devotee of God. And if that's the only purpose of Teresa's life, to just touch... And, and transform lives to the point like you don't believe in anything. My job here is like God is using me so you can believe in him. I'm a proof of his living presence. And I, I love this little thing because it just passes by like as if nothing but when someone is converted means when someone doesn't believe in God and suddenly believes in him. These are the miracles that saints do and are trying to do with all of us, like just believe in me, trust me, I'm guiding your life, I'm taking care of you, I'm your father, and as a father I will never leave my children alone or abandoned, and I will always provide you, I will always care for you. And, and this is a very important thing, like this, is, this was her way of changing people's lives. I, I just love this paragraph, like, wow, from someone who was there to, you know, write perhaps against or bring out this fraud, fraud, and suddenly, you know, there you have it, a disciple of God and Christ. I love also how they have to be scrutinized so much. <laughs> okay, yeah. now let's see. Huh? Scientifically, pata lagayenge, kahan se khun nikal rahe, kya ho rahe. You know, I mean, it's just not easy, and especially in the Catholic Church, they have a very rigorous process to ascertain whether you're a saint or not. So they go through years, and of yeah. course, you cannot be named a saint while you're living. You can only be named a saint after you've gone through, you know, you've passed away. So they put you through this really rigorous process, make sure every, so they control everything around you. You'll have a person with you all the time, checking how you speak, what you do, what uh, advice you're giving to people and they'll write it all down and make sure that it toes the you know party line and that you're not saying anything out of the ordinary what a test um, there's this beautiful movie if you get to ever see called uh, Padre Pio Padre Pio was also a Christian a Catholic saint who also received the stigmata and he was a contemporary of Yogananda's as well I think he passed away in the 1960s oh, Bernard, yeah. and that movie of Bernadette yeah what was that called the, mm. Bara? Song of, of Bernadette. Yeah. So, but, you know, in that, the only place he could be quiet and by free is when he would go into the little confessional because otherwise he's being followed by these church officials just making sure what does he do, what does he say, how does he, you know, act. And it's just not an easy thing being, <laughs> being a saint. As always, whether in East or West, I was eager to meet a saint. This is Yogananda speaking again. I rejoiced as our little party entered on July 16th, the quaint village of Cornersruth. 
The Bavarian peasants sorry, exhibited lively interest in our Ford automobile brought with us from America and its assorted group, an American young man, an elderly lady, and an olive-hued oriental with long hair tucked under his coat collar. So that's a very How interesting... How <laughs> like an olive-hued... Olive-colored <laughs> oriental with long hair. This is how Yoganandaji had to be in America. You know, he had hair all the way down here, but he'd have to kind of tuck it in his collar so that people wouldn't uh, kind of... of well, he just draw unnecessary attention. Because the one thing he had said when he went, he, you know, he said, I gave up my beard. Because when he was in India as a young man, he had a beard and long hair. So, but I won't give up my right. hair. <laughs> so he continued to have long hair. But in the 1920s, you know, nowadays... It's still, we see it as a style and fashion, but in the 1920s, somebody having long hair was just unheard of. It means that you were essentially a vagabond, like you didn't have any means to get a proper haircut and, and then they, add to the yeah, fact. They confuse him with women a woman so many times. being a woman. No, yeah. the bathroom is there for ladies. Yeah, he whenever like, he would go to the men's room, they would, you know, the valet over there. So the bellboy would say, sorry, ma'am, please go to the ladies' room. So, you know, they have their own set of kind of <laughs> fun that they have yeah. to go through. Teresa's little cottage, clean and neat, with geraniums blooming by a primitive wall, was alas silently closed. The neighbours and even the village postmen who passed by could give us no information. Rain began to fall, and my companion suggested that we leave. No, I said stubbornly, I will stay here until I find some clue leading to Therese. Two hours later, we were still sitting in our car amidst the dismal rain. Lord, I sighed complainingly, why didst thou lead me here if she has disappeared? I just love this, you know, just yeah. two hours sitting in the rain in the car. Because that's what it takes, you know, to have true darshan. Because yeah. we just think that where a blessing will be found, you know, let me go to a temple, you know, our thought is that if we go through the motions, that's where the blessings come from. But it's not in the motion, it's in the tapasya. It's in burning some karma in the process before you are even ready to receive these great blessings, mm -hmm. including a moment in the present of a saint. Not that Yoganandaji needed that, but that's what it takes. In the scriptures it says, uh, even a moment in the presence of a saint can be your raft against, raft over the ocean of delusion. And so, can you just, just if you can just want that moment so deeply that we are willing to do whatever it takes. No, I'm going to be here. And then, of course... And that's what the purpose of a pilgrimage yeah. really is all about. When you are going into the search for some spiritual experience, I mean, some tapasya, some sacrifice, some part of yourself has to be willing to be offered up, to be invested, to be tested to be changed and to your faith needs to be tested as well. And, and this is a very nice little thing about the power of a pilgrimage. Any one of us who are about to embark on a pilgrimage, just, just you know, have the right state of mind. What am I willing to go through in order to receive 
some sort of a blessing. And so after Yogananda Ji asks God, you know, <laughs> suddenly an English-speaking man halted beside us, politely offering his aid. Now it's miraculous enough that there's an English-speaking man in this tiny <laughs> German village back in the 1930s where, of course, you know, English wasn't as widespread as it is today. I don't know for certain where Therese is, he said, but she often visits at the home of Professor Wurz, a seminary master, uh, 80 miles from here. The following morning, our party motored to the quiet village of Eichstadt, narrowly lined with cobblestone streets, and Dr. Wurz greeted us cordially at his home. Yes, Therese is here. He sent her word of the visitors. And a messenger soon appeared with her reply. Though the bishop has asked me to see no one without his permission, I will receive the man of God from India. So of course she doesn't know who these people are. And as you can see, the you know the church really controlling every part of her life. Bishop has uh, not just there's no way she can just choose to go and meet whoever she wants and spend time with whoever she wants. Everything is very closely watched. But I will receive the man of God from India. She recognized her brother. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> Finally, someone who knows God like I do. Yeah, I like the fact that she acknowledged him as that, as a man of God or not, a guru who has an organization, has disciples, has a mission. You know, just like simply a man who loves God, a man who is in constant union with God. I mean, how could I not be in his presence as well. And this is something that saints can recognize instantly, even before seeing one another. I mean, a saint comes and the other saint already perceives that consciousness. And it's just beautiful that she chose to acknowledge him and describe him, uh, describes him as a man of God. Beautiful. Deeply touched at these words, I followed Dr. Verz upstairs to the sitting room Therese entered immediately, radiating an aura of peace and joy. She wore a black gown and spotless white headdress. Although her age was 37 at the time, she seemed much younger, possessing indeed a childlike freshness and charm. Healthy, well-formed, rosy-cheeked and cheerful, this is the saint that does not eat. Therese greeted me with a very gentle handshake. We both beamed in silent communion, each knowing the other to be a lover of God. That's the real communication that happens, you know, just looking into each other's eyes and knowing exactly what's happening here. Both mm -hmm. of them just, that's all their relationship was. They both love God completely, perfectly, deeply. Dr. Verse kindly offered to serve as interpreter. As we seated ourselves, I noticed that Therese was glancing at me with naive curiosity. Evidently, Hindus had been rare in Bavaria. Don't you eat anything? I wanted to hear the answer from her own lips. No, except a consecrated rice flour wafer once every morning at six o'clock. How large is the wafer? It is paper thin and the size of a small coin. She added, I take it for sacramental reasons. 
If it is unconsecrated, I am unable to swallow it. So now there's that difference between what's a consecrated wafer. It's not so much that it's that piece of, you know, that rice wafer. It is that it has been used at mass by the priest, has been blessed, has been endowed with the power. You know, it's like anything that we do. Oh, I'm offering rice into this haven. Oh, I'm giving ghee. Oh, you know, I've fool fruit. It's not that God needs the rice or the ghee. It's not like he's going to prepare a meal somewhere in, in the astral world. Oh, chawal bhi aagaya, ghee bhi aagaya, dal thoda missing hai. You know, it's, what are we offering into it has power because we're blessing everything that we're putting it and asking for it to be blessed. Therefore, everything that is left after the haven, after a puja, after a yagya, becomes vibhuti, becomes prasad. Because now it's been blessed in the process. So similarly, the wafers are consecrated with the mass by offering it to God, having it blessed by Him, and essentially transforming a piece of rice wafer into the body of Christ, into an actual experience of Christ Himself. And so she could tell if she ate an unconsecrated wafer, she won't even physically be able to swallow it. That's how kind of deeply the vibration of Christ was the only thing that she could take in. So you could give it to her, she could put it in her mouth, but then even her body won't allow her to swallow it. I was thinking that the person who did that offering, who was working with that, that process, not the kind of consciousness and refinement and attunement and, and unity and humility you have to have in order to really attract by your very humility, your very devotion, that presence of Christ's consciousness into that little wafer. And this is really an act of offering that we can do daily with our meditations, we can do daily with our seva, we can do daily by fulfilling our responsibilities. How are we doing that self-offering daily? Does it have the power to attract God's presence into that action? And only then that action is worthy of the presence of Christ. So, so I think this is a good concept to keep in mind. How can we perfect our daily self-offering and make it so powerful that we attract the blessing of a saint in our lives and therefore, therefore transforms everyone around us as this self-offering was able to, you know, by Teresa's confirmation, only until this act of suffer, uh, act of offering is so pure, so uplifted, so filled with the presence of Christ, then only I'll be able to bring that into my entire being. And I think we should put ourselves in the position of that pujari or of that <laughs> priest or that, you know, how are we making that self-offering and then to offer it to those around us? Now you can see Yoganandaji is asking her all these kind of questions, which isn't needed. He knows exactly everything about it. He's already told us all the details, but he's kind of drawing from her and almost seeing behind her answers because there's the more kind of, you can say, church, you know, uh, what's the right word? 
द ट्रेडिशनल आंसर कि ये है यू नो मेरे प्रीस्ट ने पुजारी ने बोल दिया ये खा लो ये कर लो वो कर लो ये ब्लेस्ड है ये नहीं है बट ही वॉन्टेड टू सी फॉर हिमसेल्फ वट काइंड ऑफ इंटूशिव अबिलिटी डज शी हैव टू रियली फील क्राइस प्रेजेंस गॉड्स प्रेजेंस एंड हाउ इज शी इन दिस इंटायर प्रोसेस ऑफ नॉट ईटिंग हाउ इज शी रिसीविंग हर सस्टेनेंस सो ही आस्क्स हर देन सर्टनली यू कुड नॉट हैव लिवड ऑन दैट फॉर ट्वेल्व होल ईयर्स So he's trying to see that does she believe that it's this wafer that is somehow sustaining her because on the surface of it that's what you know traditionally the priest would say look ye jo cheese hai na ye jo khari hai ye isme itna power hai isse she is living and then you would essentially tell everybody else tum bhi khao tum bhi khao tum bhi khao and that's how everything works in this world we find the physical reality we find something that senses this is it you know and this is what so this is the vibhuti that will save you this is the prasad that will save you this is the particular is mandir mein jaoge aur ye chadhaoge to ye hoega so we've got these very you know a saint did this then we create a whole reality around it and make it very material the outward action is what mattered so here he's trying to say it couldn't have been ki you've been eating this wafer and this is what sustaining you and her answer of course is i live by god's light her simple how simple her reply and how einsteinian we talked about in the law of miracles just einstein's theory of relativity equals mc square how eventually everything is energy everything eventually is light come to me jesus fill me with thy light that was the chant we started with i live by god's light so she's not even she's like it's not this way for it's it's nothing i live by god's light and then you're going to under says to her i see you realize that energy flows to your body from the ether sun and air now he's kind of provoking her a little bit because this is well beyond the realm of you know what is approved by the catholic church is like okay you know by grace of god you are living itna bol sakte ho but then you know uh, the yogic teaching that yogananda is trying to kind of wean out of her he says oh i see that you've realized that energy is flowing into your body from the air from the sun and from the ether a swift smile broke over her face i am so happy to know you understand how i live this must be the first time because thus far yeah. she's having this people are seeing her coming to her and, and she but, has to prove everything <laughs> yeah nobody's ever kind of tuned in this was like yeah. oh, i see that you realize that everything's energy and so you can just draw god's energy directly into your being and then you don't need anything at all so she's like she's like wow yeah, finally a, a real conversation is going on here your sacred life is a daily demonstration of the truth uttered by christ and these are the words from the bible man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of god and this of course those of us who practice kriya yoga we go deeply into this the medulla right here being the mouth of god bread of course just being representative of any material outside thing i live by money i live by people around me i live by food and the sustenance and nourishment that it gives so i don't live by bread alone but i live by every word word here of course everywhere we know the word is om in the christian tradition the word is amen the vibratory power behind all creation by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of god 
And so Yogananda talks about how through the medulla we can draw in cosmic energy and that's why we do the energization exercises every day. Every day trying to realize that we do not live by these material and physical realities. Of course, we can draw sustenance from them. Food itself is just a condensed version of the power of the sun. That's what the plants do. They take the sun, convert it through photosynthesis into energy. That's what we receive. And then, even if you're a meat eater, what you're really receiving is that the animals that eat the plants take the energy of the sun that they've already converted and they further convert it into energy for them and then that's what we receive. One of the reasons non-vegetarianism in the yogic tradition is not highly recommended, not just for, oh, it's bad or you're killing, those are all subtle realities as well, is that the energy that you're trying to receive, the pure prana from the sun, is getting converted several times so that by the time you get that prana, it's already gone through so many kind of stages of, you know, refinement, not in the right particular way. And so you're receiving very little of the actual prana that you could receive more directly. And that's why plants, because they are the first stage of contact, taking sunlight. I mean, imagine that. That's what plants do. Take sunlight, convert it into energy. I mean, that's a siddhi, to take sunlight and convert it into energy. Imagine if we could do that. And that's what the saints do. They take sunlight. And they convert it into energy directly in their bodies. I was thinking that Yogananda spoke about it and gave uh, an actual practice how we can start feeling that presence in the body, and that was through fasting. Mm. He highly recommended to fast just with water at least once a week and give your body system a rest where your organs, your mind, your cells, your heart, your sensitivity becomes receptive to that life force flowing through your body. And this is something that Shurjo and I and many of us in Ananda have been practiced for years, at least once a week to fast and give yourself that rest physically, emotionally, energetically, and and really feel how you can be easily and happily sustained without any external food or you know material nourishment. nourishment. And unfortunately, last year, we have not been able to keep up with that. But I think we should start introducing that maybe once a week to fast and, and start connecting with that life force and that light 